take out your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 2, as we take the first 21 verses here in a study that I've entitled Nebuchadnezzar's Dream, and this is part one. As I shared with you in the introduction, the book of Revelation would be at very best difficult, if not nearly impossible, to understand without the book of Daniel. Jesus himself in the Gospels, as his words are recorded by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uses the name that Daniel will give to the Messiah uh, more than a dozen times, the Son of Man. And so as we look to the book of Daniel, Daniel is unique amongst all of the prophetic books for the volume of extra-biblical evidence that exists to support not only its timeline, but also the history that's contained within the book of Daniel. So when you read the book of Daniel, it is not just the Bible that testifies of the details in the book of Daniel. And in fact, um, there is so much evidence that even secular historians have to agree that the book of Daniel is authentic in the history that it describes. So King Nebuchadnezzar is a real person. And in fact, King Nebuchadnezzar uh, in in 1895, uh, there was a tablet that was discovered in an antique market in Babylon that has since been translated a cuneiform tablet and it's actually called Uh, the Babylonian Chronicle, or it's called Nebuchadnezzar's Chronicle, or it's called the Jerusalem Chronicle, because in that tablet written in cuneiform are the lists of the kings that were in Israel during the time of Daniel's uh, captivity when he and the Jewish people went into captivity in Babylon. And so the dates that that are given for this book are amongst the most accurate of all of the Old Testament books. We have extremely accurate dating to the month and year of the book of Daniel. And so when we get to Daniel chapter 9 and we look at the coming of the prince, this incredible messianic timeline of when Messiah would come into Jerusalem, the reason that we know that we know that we know is because we have extra biblical evidence that the book of Daniel is authentic. And so as we dig into this this first part tonight, um, we get a little bit of history, and we also get some background information. And so let's pray, we'll pick up in verse one. Father, thank you uh, for the wonder that your word is. God preserved throughout the, the millennia Lord, not just the centuries, but the millennia. God, that you took time to to make sure that copies of this amazing book are available to us from well before the time of of the Messiah. And so, God, we ask that you would speak to us through your word and pray that we would learn and grow and we would also have a, a, a greater and deeper appreciation for the truth of your word and for the validity of your word. God, we thank you for these extant copies, Lord, that exist in the Dead Sea Scrolls, for the information contained uh, in these cuneiform tablets uh, that one can go gaze on and, and recognize that these kings listed in our Bible, in the book of Kings, the book of Chronicles, here in the book of Daniel, Lord, are, are listed elsewhere. They're not just found in Scripture. And so, Lord, we thank you for that information, and we pray that you would cause us uh, to hear your Spirit's voice tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1 here in Daniel 2, and this is a long chapter. We're going to divide it into several different parts, and it all is Nebuchadnezzar's dream. We're going to take the first 23 verses tonight, which really uh, provides kind of the introduction Uh, to what's going to happen in the dream itself and then we'll get to the dream and these incredible kingdoms that are laid out uh, that we'll we'll begin to compare to world history in our next study. And now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was so troubled that sleep left him. 
And so the first question becomes for most of us is, you know, is this a real person or is this just a, a fabricated name that we find in the Bible? Um, this is where the historical information becomes very, very, very valuable to us. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and in fact, his father and his grandfather are also well-known uh, in history, and his name has, has been listed in the Chronicles uh, of multiple different authors and so we know that Nebuchadnezzar is not only historical um, but he was as famous uh, as is claimed here in the book of Daniel and so he had dreams his spirit was troubled so that his sleep had left him so he's having some sleepless nights over these dreams and then the king gave the command to call all the magicians astrologers sorcerers uh, and the Chaldeans to the king as he had his dreams uh, when you see the word Chaldeans, it actually uh, uh, implies also astrologers, those who would be mystics, uh, psychics, those types of things. It, it had to do with those who were specifically in Babylon. And so basically he's turning to every psychic friends network he can turn into. He, he's like calling up everybody he can think of that might give him a possible direction on what's going on in these dreams that he has repetitively um, the, the plurality of dreams here seems to indicate that not only does he have frequent dreams, but he has the same dream over and over. And so they came and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I have had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. And so we, we have the beginning opening of this. When you look at what is contained, and, and this is all contained in a, a number of books, but Dr. Stephen Collins uh, authored a book that kind of chronicles all of these various tablets and pieces of uh, cuneiform pottery, all, all kinds of stuff that just validates uh, the dates that we're going to give you tonight. Um, Jehoiakim, who was the, the king of Judah at the time uh, that these things were first written before the children of Israel went into their initial captivity in 605 B.C., uh, he is listed on this, on this cuneiform tablet. Jehoiakim, his next of kin, is also listed all the way down through Zedekiah and down through the fall of Jerusalem. So that we know this window uh, of time is between 609 and 586 B.C. And in fact, we know the exact months, the months of Nisan, uh, very specifically, that these young men are going, to, going into service to King Nebuchadnezzar. And so this kind of opens up with a bit of a chronological problem because we know that these young men are going to get three years uh, of training and there's a couple of ways to look at it. Uh, one is, is that because they were 10 times smarter than those who were teaching them, uh, they may have been able to condense that three years into less than three years and the three years just seemed to indicate the normal time it would take somebody uh, to be able to consume this information and be well-trained and able then to uh, use that information before the king. But there is a second way to look at it, another solution, if you will, and that's that these youths were taken into captivity in August of 605 B.C. That is the date uh, that happens to be on this tablet uh, that's called Nebuchadnezzar's Chronicle or the Jerusalem Chronicle or the Babylonian Chronicle, whichever of those three names you want to use. Uh, Daniel and his three friends are examined in August of that year um, because they were far brighter than their, uh, those that were also being trained and Nebuchadnezzar puts them immediately into this training program uh, and it's not going to begin until the first official year that he's king which is the following year and so the dates on this tablet then would coincide because the Jewish people always looked at a year as complete in the month. It's rather like we would consider a year to be from January to January or February to February. That would be a year to us. In the Jewish way of thinking, any part of the year was a year. And so if you would then move to Nisan in 602, uh, which would be April, that would have been actually the th third year. So the chronological problem is, is, actually, is actually solved that way. And so these three years of training uh, can be identified through the timing uh, that is actually on this, this cuneiform tablet. The next piece of information to us as Christians, to us who believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, is probably the more important piece of information. 
And that is found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. The book of Daniel, there are three nearly complete copies in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, The most complete one has been dated by secular archaeologists to 75 BC. That's still well before the time of Christ, so anything contained in it could not be considered to be written after Jesus came to make it match up with the dates of the coming of Messiah, but it was actually written and completed before Messiah came. Uh, That particular scroll, if you travel with us when we go to Israel, we actually go to Qumran. We specifically walk out on a peninsula. We look at Cave 4. Cave 4 was the the real centerpiece of the Dead Sea Scrolls find. Uh, And there in Cave 4 was found this particular uh, scroll, which was the 112th scroll. So it is Cave 4. Qumran, because there's all kinds of Dead Sea Scroll caves. They're found all over the Judean foothills. There are literally hundreds of them. Um, But in Cave 4, at Qumran, the 112th scroll, the first of the Daniel scrolls, was also the most complete. And there is an incredible thing that happens in this particular scroll. It begins written in Hebrew. It changes then to Aramaic, which was the the children of Israel's language as they came out of the captivity and then it switches back to Hebrew. And the reason that is important to us is that times of the Gentiles, the age of grace, which included the moment that Messiah came and everything that would entail uh, what we would call the times of the Gentiles all the way to the beginning of the very last days is all written in Aramaic. And then, because of what we believe to be true at the rapture of the church, leading to seven years of tribulation, followed by the second coming of Christ, followed by the millennial reign of Christ, because the whole focus of that period of time is, guess who? The Jewish people. Every bit of that information in the book of Daniel, in every copy, is written in Hebrew. And so God took time to write in the language that the Jewish people would have spoken in a Gentile world. He wrote that in the language that they would have spoken in the Gentile world. And he wrote in the language that would have, will be spoken in the very last days, which will be when God deals with Israel, fulfilling that prophecy And that promise that is contained in Romans chapter 11 that one day all Israel will be saved, that time is still yet future to us today. That part's written in Hebrew. Which to me, as I look at that, that's like God putting an exclamation point on the end of the book of Daniel saying, look, I want you to understand, at the beginning, they're Hebrews in captivity. In the middle, they're coming out of the captivity And they're speaking Aramaic because that's the language of the Gentile world at the time. And then when the fulfillment of the final bit of the prophecy of the book of Daniel, everything after the coming of Messiah until the children of Israel as as a people, as a a group, when, when all Israel is saved, not meaning every last Israeli or not meaning every last Jew, but rather every Jewish person in, in, in totality, in a sense like we would call ourselves a Christian nation, the Jewish people as a whole will come to faith in Christ. That time is written in Hebrew. And so an incredible piece of just confirmation for us. There are three periods of of time uh, that Aramaic was used. The old Aramaic was used from the 10th to the 7th centuries BC. Uh, The official or imperial Aramaic Uh, during this particular time, the 6th to the 4th centuries BC, and then the Western or Eastern Aramaic uh, was used from the 3rd century BC all the way forward. And and if there, which there are still some people on the planet Earth that actually can speak Aramaic, they're very rare, by the way, Um, those people still speak that Western or Eastern Aramaic to this day. And so Daniel provides this this incredible look uh, into the future. And in fact, Aramaic, because it was spoken by the Jews coming out of captivity, when you read the book of Nehemiah, interestingly enough, because they come back, here's Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra goes back to Jerusalem, begins the rebuilding process. Nehemiah comes along later and and finishes it or actually completes the walls of the city. In Nehemiah 8, they had to actually translate the scriptures back into Hebrew 
Uh, they had to interpret them because they didn't understand Hebrew because they were understanding uh, Aramaic at that time. And so uh, in Jesus' day, of course, the Jews, Jesus himself likely spoke Aramaic and Greek. And so God giving us just a little bit of, of import and in the Hebrew section, which happens uh, there in Daniel chapter nine, providing the outline of Israel's future, is that's, that's all in Hebrew. And so that is yet to come. And of course, the Jewish people today, uh, oddly enough, they have to have Hebrew classes in Israel because a vast majority of the people returning to Israel don't speak Hebrew. So they have to actually be taught Hebrew. And so God's sufficiently given us enough information that we look ahead to what is coming for the Jewish people. And we can say, God actually told us that there would be a language change. And of course, until 1948, there was no nation on the face of the earth that actually Hebrew was the official language. And so that time is now. It began April 14th, 1948, and we are continuing in that time when uh, God is one day going to deal with national Israel. What is the importance of Nebuchadnezzar's dream? And, and it kind of provides, again, just some food for thought for us. Uh, in our day, uh, when we have dreams, and I want to be, again, very cautious to you. We looked at Joseph's dreams as we're studying uh, the book of Genesis, and God does speak through dreams, but it is not the normal method of communication for, for most people. And I often have people come to me, and they, they want me to interpret their dreams. And I look at them, and I go, Mexican food. <laughs> you ate Doritos way too late. Or you, you, you watch some kind of, you know, you watch. My other thing is, what kind of television did you watch before you went to bed? You know, because they're, they're wondering why they're seeing these, you know, these creepy, you watched a horror movie before you went to sleep. Uh, dreams can have psychological causes. They can have emotional causes. They can have culinary causes. Uh, they can be because you're, you, did, you are not resting. There's, there's all kinds of reasons you can have dreams. But in this case, uh, God is actually speaking and we see God uh, revealing future events in Genesis chapter 20 and Genesis 28 and 37 and 44. And in the book of Judges, God speaks in dreams to Gideon. So God does do that occasionally. Um, and, and so in this particular case, the time was right for God to speak to a pagan king through a way that he was used to actually responding to his culture. And I think that's important for us to understand. King Nebuchadnezzar was used to calling his astrologers, um, those people that we would call uh, mystics or psychics, um, those, those types of individuals. He was used to doing that. That was something that was common in their culture. And so I believe the chief reason that God speaks this way to Nebuchadnezzar is because Nebuchadnezzar was used to actually calling out his astrologers he was, he was used to speaking uh, to them about the visions he had and the things that he saw as he was sleeping and, and so God simply says that's what he normally does so I'm going to slip right into this normal practice and I'm going to give him something to really chew on uh, as he's asleep in other words God was basically saying look the time is right I'm going to speak into this king's life uh, and in fact what King Nebuchadnezzar was about to find out is exactly uh, what Luke would declare as the author's uh, the book of Acts some six centuries later and it says there in Luke's in, in Acts chapter 17 verses 26 and 27 from from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he has determined the times set for them in other words the book of Acts records what the apostle Paul was thinking that Luke recorded uh, that God has actually determined the events ultimately that are going to happen here on earth and he has exact places where they should live. It goes on to say, and God did this, the book of Acts says, so that men would seek him. That is exactly what God is trying to get into the heart and the mind of King Nebuchadnezzar. He's trying to turn King Nebuchadnezzar towards himself. And, and so he's going to use these dreams. He's going to use Daniel. He's going to use Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they spend time in the lion's den in the fiery furnace. They are going to be useful in God's hands to turn men back to God. 
And it says there, finishing those two verses, perhaps to reach out, to find him, for he is not far from each one of us. And that's the New Living Translation of Acts 17, 26, 27. So, so Nebuchadnezzar's dreams kind of perform uh, the, the function of a skeleton or a framework that we can hang the rest of the Gentile world's history on so that when we start looking at history itself, we can, we, can, we can look back to Daniel and go, you know what, God told King Nebuchadnezzar these things in advance some 2,500 years ago. Um, probably most of you have not done a tremendous amount of study in Greek history Uh, But I'm sure that most of you have heard of maybe the Iliad, the Odyssey, those types of things. And and you probably know some of the major Greek gods, probably the Roman gods as well. You know, those that would be in the pantheon of gods of those cultures. Um, But most of you do know uh, that there were some world empires that were ruling for very extended periods of time from about the time that these words were written. And probably most of you can name them. I'm sure that most of you have heard of the Greek Empire, specifically the rule of Alexander the Great. Uh, I doubt there's very few people in this room that have not heard uh, of the Greek rule of most of the known world under, under Alexander the Great. I also would believe that most of you realize there was a point in time, uh, matter of fact, a near thousand-year history where the Roman Empire controlled a vast majority of the, of the known world. They were the ruling power. Um, maybe some of you don't realize the place that Persia had, but prior to this particular king and to some degree afterwards, you have this empire called Media Persia, uh, it's a region that now would include the stands, so Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, that, that area that's kind of south of Russia, a little bit north uh, of modern-day Iran, and to the east uh, of modern-day Iraq, kind of in that area that's on the edge of the, the Mongolian plateau and the Gobi Desert. But this, this area of the world uh, was at one point in time ruled by the Medes and the Persians, and so it was called Media Persia. And, and so God is going to give us a picture of these ruling empires, and he's going to name them in sequence. He, he's going to give us a window into history. And so in order to set that up, he has to get King Nebuchadnezzar's attention. If he's going to speak into the most prominent king that existed in the world at the time, then he's got to get that king to understand that whatever is said to him is actual truth. And so there are some foundational pieces of information that King Nebuchadnezzar is going to get. And so one of those things will be these successive nations beginning with him. And so he's going to be told, you are the head of gold. And so he'll understand that the whole rest of the dream is about subsequent nations and their rulers. And so when Daniel begins to unveil these things, as we'll see next time, Nebuchadnezzar is beginning to think there's something different about this guy, Daniel. Uh, He has information that other people don't have. And and so the dream begins this, this way. God terrifies him. And God does this occasionally. He does so in the book of Job as well to Job himself. You know, he kind of he kind of says, "Look, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world?" You know, he gives him some information. He says, "Look, were you, were you around when I established that? You know, the the world is actually a a globe, a sphere, and you can't buy that kind of information." You see, Nebuchadnezzar had all kinds of astrologers. He had these people that could, you know, give him a little bit of of input, um, and, and he has these guys that are loosely called Chaldeans, um, which were attached to the Zoroastrian religion and so from Persia, from media Persia you have these guys who created what we call the Zodiac Um, they would look up into the night sky and they would assign certain constellations with characteristics of humanity and so if you were, you know, you were a Leo then you were, you know, you were fierce and those types of things if you were a Taurus you were stubborn and, and you know, hard to deal with and so he's really hedging 
by bringing in every single type of informational pathway that he can get his hands on. He's got astrologers, he's got magicians, he, he has those that we would call necromancers, people who kind of call, call out to the dead, you know, maybe the dead past ancestors, you know, have some idea what's going on here. He is calling in everybody. He's, he's got the cult temple priests, he's got their scholars, he's got people who are learned, he's got people who we would say are probably enchanters and sorcerers. And people who are, you know, probably smoking dope or, you know, who knows what they're doing. They've got their charms, their potions. So you can kind of put this into your mind. So you walk into this room and here's Nebuchadnezzar and there's people chanting and screaming and, you know, making all kinds of, you know, cries to their gods or their sources of information. There, there is smoke going up and offerings being made and people going out and checking out what the stars are doing. This is a major scene. This is like a, this is like, you know, astrologer con in, in 605 BC. And, and they're, they're all doing their thing. And they're, they're all going to answer to this one man. And so you can see the power that existed in, in, in Nebuchadnezzar's life. And, and these practices, every last one of them are condemned in the Old Testament. The book of Exodus and Deuteronomy, Isaiah and Jeremiah, you, you find God repeatedly saying, do not turn to these practices. So on one hand, you have this room full of people who are doing everything that God says not to, and then you have Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These four guys who are going to hear from the one true and living God. And so it truly is the world against the Lord. And it is completely known to Nebuchadnezzar that on one side you got all his people. And on the other side you have Yahweh Lord of hosts and his people. And so as this dream now is going to come into view for us and the king's going to speak of it, verse four, it says, and then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. So they're, they're kind of tapping into the language that's being spoken by these that are in captivity. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will give the interpretation. So they're kind of trying to... to tag along with what they think Daniel might be able to do. And the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, now I don't know if you've ever had somebody say something like this to you, but this is not what you want to hear from your boss. My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, not just the dream, now, now get this. He's saying, I'm not telling you what the dream is. You need to tell me what the dream is. And oh, by the way, you need to also give me the interpretation of the dream. So not just the dream, not just the interpretation, but both of them. You will be cut to pieces and your houses shall be made ash heaps. So he says, this is, this is a serious deal. And guess what? You get exactly one shot at it. Because the only one who knows what the dream is, is Nebuchadnezzar, Amen. So, so 50% of what he's asking for, he actually does know the answer to. So he can judge that part himself. So if you don't get that part right, then he knows that the rest of the information isn't correct. So he's shrewd. This guy is wise. He's, he's actually setting up, look, I'm going to know whether you're even in the right ballpark. Because if you don't give me the right dream, then everything else that follows absolutely is not uh, not the truth. And he says, verse six, however, if you, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, great honor, and therefore tell me the dream and its interpretation. They said again and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will give you its interpretation. Can, can you imagine the fear that's going? It's like, oh no, I, I wish I'd have chosen some other profession. You know, I, today is not a good day to be an astrologer. It's like, could, could you give us like half the information? It's like, could I change jobs? Could you get somebody else? At least tell us the dream, basically. And the king answered and said, 
I know for certain that you would gain time because you see that my decision is firm. He says, look, you're just stalling. And, and so they're already in trouble. If you do not make known to me the dream, there is only one decree for you. So their fate is already sealed. There's no bartering with him. For you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the time has changed. He said, look, you're, you're just going to stall. You're going to keep going until I, I, I run out of patience or something. I just get tired of hearing from you and you think I'm going to let you go. That's not going to happen. And therefore, tell me the dream, for I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. And the Chaldeans answered the king, there is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter, and therefore no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requests. It's not difficult, it's impossible. But God's the God of impossible, amen? And there is no other who can tell the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Now I love this because what has actually happened is the door just got opened for Daniel and for Daniel's God. Because not only has the king backed them into a corner, And they have then backed the king into a different type of corner by saying, look, nobody can do this. They have just made it so that if anybody does do it, guess where it came from? Some other source other than this earth. These heathen astrologers have just given God the actual tool that is necessary for Nebuchadnezzar to say, when Daniel tells the correct dream and the interpretation, guess where it came from? So God is faithful even in these difficult circumstances to work on our behalf to set the stage for him to do what only he can do. And so this dream begins. And so you have all these these crazy people Uh, The drama, if you will, begins to unfold. And man, you talk about a good day turning into a bad day. The the advisors were getting no sympathy. Nobody was getting any time off for good behavior. And on top of that, if you were wrong, you're going to be cut to pieces. Now, people have debated, was that, you know, some type of euphemism? Was he just, you know, kind of kidding, joking? No, actually, 2 Kings chapter 25 actually records for us that the Babylonians actually did these types of things. They literally cut people into pieces just to make sure that people understood the type of power that they had. And so this was not an idle threat. Uh, The king of Babylon at Ribla was actually... Uh, the sentence was pronounced on him and they killed the sons of Zedekiah right before his eyes and, and then they put out his eyes and it's just, these, were, these were cruel, cruel, cruel people quite capable of doing these things. And so you can kind of imagine what the, the advisors are going through at this point in time. And, and, and in that sense, you can almost see how God gave this dream in a way that it was completely unforgettable and the caliber of advisors that are available for Nebuchadnezzar was really the very best that the world had to offer. And you can kind of see how God is working in very similar ways in our world. We, the world thinks that it has all the answers. The, the world turns to these types of things. And I remember when, when Ronald Reagan was president, and, and God bless Nancy Reagan, but you know, she, would, she would constantly seek the advice of psychics. This is, a, this is one of her you know, crazy quirks that she had. And, and she would literally consult with psychics as to whether you know, certain things would happen. And every once in a while, because this is how the devil works, some of the things that she heard from the psychics actually came true. You know why that is? Because Satan can work lying wonders as well. And so some of those things actually happened. But the Bible says the way you know a false prophet from a real prophet is 100% of what they say comes true. And that didn't happen, and it's not going to happen with these guys. And so God is setting the stage for King Nebuchadnezzar to know the difference between Daniel and his God and the true, or the true and the living God, and these false gods. And so 
as shrewd as this young king is, he, he suspects his advisors. He's got all the normal uh, political stuff that we see going on in our world. Nobody trusts any, anybody, amen? When, when you listen, what is the common mantra in, in politics today? Well, they're not telling the truth. You know, it's fake news or it's whatever. You, it doesn't matter which side you, you try and defend. Everybody says everybody else is lying. That's actually been the way that these things work for a very, very long time. People use their power to manipulate other people. They don't need to tell the truth. They have so much power that they can tell lies. And the only time the lies actually get to them is when somebody actually survives. So what does Nebuchadnezzar threaten to do? So, well, if I happen to kill you, there's not much you can say about it. And so he is going to take care of the problem himself in that sense. And so unwittingly, the Chaldeans basically told the king point blank that his request is completely unreasonable. It's like there's no way anybody's going to be able to tell you these things. So in those verses 4 through 11, we see the unreasonable expectation that the king has set upon any human being unless that person is hearing from God. Which makes the unreasonable request an amazing request, doesn't it? The next thing we see is kind of the folly of the king. Look at verse 12. And for this reason, the king was very angry and very furious and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. You, you talk about having a bummer day. You know, you're, you're involved in computer science. We're gonna kill all the computer scientists on, on, in, in Babylon. You know, I mean, it's, they're going to wipe out anybody who has anything to do with this particular area of life and living, living in Babylon. And so the decree went out and they began killing the wise men. So, so here are the guys that have heard the king's request. They've told him it's unreasonable. And the next thing they figure out is that, oh, he really means to kill everybody. And so he starts wiping out the rest of the astrologers and those that would give him this information. And so they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Can I tell you, sometimes those great trials are actually just incredible opportunities for the Lord to do miracles. And this is really where the miracle of Daniel's life begins to, to unfold. And notice the word this there in verse 12. It says, for this reason. What was the this that was maybe going through the king's mind? Well, I look at it, it's like, man, you talk about disappointment. You're, you're, the, you're the head guy. You've got all these paid astrologers and, and you know magicians and everybody else is supposed to be doing your bidding and not one of them can interpret your dream. And your dream is very disturbing to you. And because you have that power, no doubt that's part of for this reason. Also, we, we can understand that the king now knows that these guys were actually stalling, that none of them had the correct dream and probably none of them had the interpretation either. And so he's had a confirmation of his suspicions. And, and probably the most important thing in these four things that I kind of picked out here was the, the king had a god. The Babylonian god was Marduk. Uh, and this was the, the half bull, half man god that was the son of the sun god, but he was a chief god of the Babylonians. Uh, and, and his god was supposed to be the one that was empowering all these astrologers and mystics and, and these guys that were supposed to be the king's advisors. They were supposed to be empowered by Marduk and unfortunately they had no answers so Nebuchadnezzar is forced to think hmm I, I wonder if my God's real I wonder if my God is actually who I think he is now you may be saying I don't have any friends who worship Marduk but do you have friends that worship power passion possession money you, you see whatever you worship that's your God whatever you put your time your talent your treasure into that's your God and, and so people were created by God to worship the question is who and in this case the Babylonians were worshiping a false God 
And so what does God do? He opens the door to worship him by showing them that the God that they worship is a false God. Have you ever wondered why people's financial kingdoms come crashing down? Have you ever wondered why the relationships that they're in one right after another can't satisfy? Have you ever wondered when you, when you hope in politics why, why that's kind of a dead end street most of the time? Have you ever thought about how God actually sets things up to where you begin to hope and trust and you actually start to worship something other than him and he allows that thing substituted here for the word this, you allow that thing God does to just simply come crashing down and the true power that's supposed to be in it is made known to be nothing. God is behind that type of thing happening in most everyone's life. It's one of the things that causes us to seek after him, isn't it? We start looking for, man, my God failed. My financial plan didn't work out quite the way I thought it was. My education didn't provide me with the things that I thought it was going to provide me. I don't have all the answers I thought I was going to have. I figured if I got this doctorate, you know, if I, if I ended up just being the, the brightest light in this intellectual room, that somehow that would take away the, this this question that I have in my life. How did I get here? What is there after this? You see, no matter whether you're a king or a peasant, those questions exist in every last one of us. People ask those questions, including King Nebuchadnezzar. And so Nebuchadnezzar's going, wow, my faith in my God is being shaken. And then we see the king's reaction to the audacity of these frauds to actually criticize him. What do you mean? Telling me it's a bad question or not a good idea or an unanswerable thing or, a, or an unrealistic question, an unreasonable request. You see, there's no law, there's no judge, there's no jury, there's no will, there's no whim of this king who's governed all things at that point in time that's actually going to answer these questions. And there are no answers in the kings of this world to this day for your deepest questions. Those questions can only be answered by God. And so God allows things that only he can do. God puts impossible things in your life. And I can't tell you what they're going to be for every person in this room, but I can tell you he has allowed many impossible things in my life to prove exactly who he is, in Connie and I's life, to prove exactly who he is. I was talking with somebody last week, and you, you know, you have nowhere to go. When you're cradling your own son in the backseat of an automobile, driving across the rim of the world highway, believing that your son is dead, and you're heading to the hospital, and you get there, and the doctor basically confirms that there's pretty much zero chance he's going to live. And then you put him in an ambulance, and you have to do CPR on your own son. And you get to the hospital, and the doctor says, well, if he lives, he's going to have severe neurological damage. Ultimately, there is nowhere to go but to the king of heaven with those types of things. Because a doctor can't fix it. An ambulance can't fix it. A medicine can't fix it. Only God can fix it. Only God can give answers to those types of questions. And so it doesn't matter whether you're a pastor or someone sitting in the pew. God is going to give you things in your life that only he can answer. It's so you'll turn to him. It's so you'll cry out to him. It's so you'll stop asking for answers from people and things that, that cannot answer with, with the way that, in the way that God can, with truth. And it's interesting to me that they actually are having to look for Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because they're not with the king's counselor. So you can see how God's people had separated themselves out from the people of this world. We've been called to be saints. That means one's separated out, saint-like. We're the hagios. We're those ones who are not like this world, 
we should be in a different place than the world. The world should have to look for us because we're not with the world. If you're with the world, the world can find you really easy. But the world should have to actually look for us a little bit. We shouldn't be like the pagan religious leaders of Babylon then or now. And so Nebuchadnezzar finally cools down and uh, if he had done so at that present time, he, he probably would have realized that his wisest advisors weren't actually there. But whenever you get in that state of mind of fury and you, you begin to think selfishly of yourself, you, you don't make good decisions. The next thing we see is Daniel's, Daniel's request, verses 14 to 18. And then, with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. And he answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree from the king so urgent? And, and so you can kind of see again, God just stepping into this. It's like the king's made a decree. That it's begun to be carried out. And, and then Arioch made the, the decision to make known to Daniel. He says, he says Daniel, look, you, you, you kind of need to step up your game here a little bit. God is sending very specific information to his people. And this is an important thing for you and I. God, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says, speaks to his people in a way that people who do not know him do not get spoken to. Spiritual things are spiritually appraised. The carnal mind, the natural man, cannot know the things of God. God sends messages to his own people that he does not send to everybody else. And this captain of the guard is like that. It's a picture of that happening. Daniel's going to get a piece of information that everybody else is not going to get. And look what happens. Because Daniel is spoken to in a way by God through this captain of the guard, Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. Now, I find it fascinating that it only says interpretation, not the dream. Why is that? Because if he had said, I don't know the dream, the king would have instantaneously known that he does not have the information he needs to have already. And so who gives us wisdom? God. We're supposed to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all other things will be added unto us. We're supposed to seek that wisdom which comes from God. Seek the Lord while he may be found. You see, what Daniel does is exactly what we need to do. We need to be seeking God, looking for his wisdom. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Amen? Not trust in the world's ways. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Don't turn to your own way. And that's what Daniel does. And, and God answers Daniel's inquiry. And then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might notice this. Where did they go? Did they go out and find some bones and a few leaves? Did they create some new way to, you know, kind of, you know, do some super mystical thing in front of Nebuchadnezzar that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning the secret. And therein lies the secret to your prayer life. The prayer, as James 5.16 says, of a, of a righteous man is powerful, it is effective. When we turn to God, we can expect God to answer. And he did the right thing. They prayed, and so Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Daniel prays effectively for what is, is on God's, God's mind, God's heart. He said, God, what do you want us to do? What do you want us to say? Daniel's secret to the success in this crisis is he was a man of prayer. The secret to Daniel's success was that he was a man of prayer. He, he went where he could get the right answer. 
You know, it's so strange to me, and I've done this in my own life, so this is not judgmental at all. We are so quick to turn to people and so slow to turn to God, aren't we? How often do we go ask people to give us an answer that God could give us instantaneously if we would just ask him, but we don't. We go ask Aunt, you know, Susie or Uncle Bob. I don't think Susie and Bob are in here tonight, so I can say that. I usually try not to pick people that are in here. But, you know, you, you go and you ask somebody, it's like, you know, can you, can you tell me the answer to this? And you go ask, they, they don't have the answer. And you go ask somebody else. And you post it on Facebook and then you do an Instagram post and you try and get everybody to chime in with their answers. Well, what do you think? You know, I'm going through this. And then it's kind of, it's kind of like that, oh, I should have had a V8 moment where you hit your forehead. You go, you know, why don't I talk to God? And so, family, we, we learned something from Daniel in this passage tonight. If you want to have answers, go to God first. Don't go to him last. Don't go after everything else fails. Go to God first. Talk to him. And notice what, what they're looking for. So that they might not perish. Daniel knew the importance of that question. He knew the importance of praying. He, he understood what Acts chapter 4 paints for us. The secrets of God are revealed to those who pray. It's that simple. God reveals himself to people who will talk to him. That, that's the principal way that it happens in our life. Uh, and, and someone without the Spirit is not going to get those answers from God. But somebody with the Spirit... That, that's who James 1 5 says that's who gets revealed to them the deep the hidden things if you want to know what lies in darkness awaiting you talk to God if you want to know where light is and, and you want it to shine on you talk to God if you want to have God's resources talk to God if you want to have God's wisdom talk to God Daniel understood this you know I, I, I've been in ministry long enough uh, these three decades have taught me an awful lot of lessons. You, you learn stuff in 30 years, at least most of us do. Sometimes we're a little slow on the uptake, you know. But I can tell you, there is so much that God knows that I don't know that, that my experience matters not to God. He couldn't care less because I'm going to come across something new and I need him to speak in my life. It's not always going to be my experience is going to be able to solve the problem. It's not going to be my previous counsel or knowledge or understanding of his word is going to be that word for that person in that moment. And so if I want answers that are going to be suited for the hearer, those apples of gold and settings of silver, I need to talk to the Lord. As, as you begin to read and as we go through the remainder of this chapter, we're going to find out that Daniel's his friends took the time to pray for themselves. Do you pray for yourself or do you just pray for other people? Or do you pray for stuff? You know, as I've gotten older, I spend most of my time praying for me. Sorry. Because <laughs> I figured out I'm actually the problem. I just need to pray for me. If I would pray for my own attitude to be right, then everybody else's attitude doesn't bother me so much. If, if I pray for me to do what's right in the eyes of the Lord, I find out that I am accomplishing what God wants for me and what everybody else does isn't quite so important. Learn to pray for yourself. These guys prayed for themselves. It's like, look, Lord, we need you. Not do this, and it's good to pray for others. We, we need to pray for the state of Florida. We, there's a category five hurricane bearing down on the state of Florida. We need to pray that that goes up the coast and turns into some of that water there in the Gulf Stream and goes back out to sea. We need to pray for those types of things. Absolutely. But I also need to pray that I would walk in the spirit every day. I need to pray that I would speak what God wants me to speak. Not just that I prepare well. I mean, preparing well is a good thing. But God has something he wants to say. Am I actually asking him like Daniel and his friends do here? Notice verse 19 as we 
you see this drama first begin and then Daniel kind of lets us into this this vision and the praise that comes out. And we're going to look at some things that come out uh, of what Daniel's experiencing here with the Lord as he receives a vision. And then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Now remember the difference between a dream and a vision. A dream happens when you're asleep. A vision is when you're awake. It's the easiest way to remember it. So, so Daniel's in prayer. He's not asleep. He's praying but he's, he's brought into the presence of the Lord, and in that presence of the Lord, he received a vision at night. And so Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Now, I want you to notice these things, and there's eight of them that I've picked out. Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. God is worthy of our honor. He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of being uh, exalted. He's worthy of us starting our prayer with, God, you're God. And I'm coming where I know I can get the answer. You're the God of heaven. You're the God of earth. I'm not. I have what you need. You don't need what I have. And Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. For wisdom and might are his. He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Reveals deep things, secret things. He knows what is in darkness. Light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers, for you have given me wisdom and might, and you have made known to me what we asked of you, for you have been made known to us, you have made known to us the king's demand. Now, that's a short prayer. I I think if, if you sat down to read that and you really went quick, you could probably get that out in about 30 seconds. But I want you to see the components of what's being said there. He hallows God's name. He he places God where God belongs. He says, God, you have stuff that I don't have. You understand, understand things that I don't understand already. You have information that I need. You alone are the one that sits in the heavens. You alone are majestic. You alone are holy. He said, you are the God of heaven and blessed is your name forever and ever. You couldn't say that about the gods of the Babylonians. As a matter of fact, they changed gods just exactly like the Egyptians did, exactly like the Romans did. They would periodically begin to worship some of even the lesser gods in their own pantheon. Why? Well, because, you know, maybe Zeus stopped doing what he normally does or Poseidon. Uh, maybe Mars, the god of war, stopped you know, giving them favor on the battlefield, and so they would begin to cry out to the other gods. You will never be wrong crying out to the God of heaven. He has always got the answers. He will never not have the answer, and you can't go wrong talking to him. So hallow his name. Cry out to him. The whole universe is God's kingdom. And so he is the one that resides over the earth. Notice the second thing. You see, we're tempted to think that it is maybe our president or the EU or perhaps the G7, uh, which we're talking about making into the G8 again and letting Russia back into it. We're tempted to think that so far as the earth is concerned, that the actual rulers of the earth are these people. That maybe our, our president, along with Congress and the Supreme Court, you put our three branches together, you have the executive branch, legislative branch, and you have the judicial branch, you put them all together, and that's who runs the country. Can I tell you they don't run the country? They think they do. And to some degree, they have a function. They've actually been installed, according to Romans 13, by the Lord. But God is the God of the earth. 
He's the one that raises up kings. He's the one that raises up kingdoms. And likewise, he is the one that tears down kings and kingdoms. And so if we really want the kingdom of God to be visible here on earth, then we have to let the king of heaven reside over earth because he's actually the king of here too. He's not just the king of heaven. He is the king of heaven and earth as well as our lives. Daniel understood that. Look at his prayer. Wisdom and might are his. Times and change. He raises and removes kings. It's God that gives wisdom to the wise. God has the cure for cancer. Did you know that? God has the cure for cancer. Everything that ails mankind, God has a cure for it. He has all wisdom, all knowledge. He's not missing anything. He, he didn't, he was like, man, I just wish we could whip that cancer thing. God could cure cancer by simply speaking it into existence in this world. He created the world from nothing. He could easily cure cancer. The problem is, I think for the most part, we're not actually asking God for that. We're asking scientists to do it. And the scientists are doing their best job. And, and we want them to continue to do that. But what if the whole body of Christ cried out to the Lord for the cure for cancer? So God, I know you have it. There are, there are millions and millions of people suffering from cancer. But I'm not sure we do that. We pray for the cure for cancer when we get affected with cancer ourselves. You see, sometimes we're just not asking the right questions of God. We're not seeking him as the one who has all knowledge and all wisdom. We, we kind of, in essence, take God off of his throne in heaven and we put him on some little throne here on earth. He's the one that gives wisdom to the wise. He takes those brilliant scientists, doctors, researchers, just like that could put that thought in their mind. There it is. He has that capacity. It's God that reveals the deep and the hidden things. You know, I'm constantly amazed. The more I read, the more I study, how much we actually do not still know. It is mind-boggling what we don't know. You know, a vast majority uh, of the world's oceans have never been explored. You get down below the surface of the sea, we don't even know what's down there. We have no idea. We have no capacity whatsoever to understand what energizes cellular life. We don't know how a mitochondrial motor works. We have all these proteins that we think we kind of get how they link together and those types of things. We can't even produce a single cell. But God creates universes by simply speaking them into existence. And we don't talk to him. He knows the deep things, the hidden things. God's the one that has power and wisdom. And it's God who makes known the things we ask for. In other words, God has the answers. And it's going to be God who's going to make known the king's dream. Now that seems, remember what the astrologers originally said, nobody but God can do this. Amen. Amen. It is only God that can do it. And so the door is open for people to hear from God. And the same is true in your life. When you open the door and give glory to the Lord, only God can do this, and then God does it. Guess who gets the glory for it? God. He wants to use your life in a similar way that he's using Daniel's life. And Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. He's using these young men for a purpose. Yeah, he's put them into a difficult situation, but the moment he puts them into a difficult situation, he's also saying to them, look, I'm the answer. Why don't you show the world who I am by trusting me? Resting in me. 
seeking me for wisdom. And so Daniel understands these things. He begins to give honor to the Lord in that circumstance and situation. And we're going to see how God then seizes on this and works in the life of this this incredibly great king, this young man, Nebuchadnezzar, as the second act of this play unfolds next time. And we'll pick up in verse 24. Let God use you. Seek the king of heaven. Ask him. If you knock, it'll be opened unto you. Amen? If you seek, you'll find. It's always been the same. God's got a plan. But we need to ask him to give us the answers. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the incredible wisdom of your word. And Lord, we ask that you would just speak these truths into our lives in a way that we can retain them. Uh, God, we do hallow your name. We, we recognize that every king and every kingdom on this earth, uh, you're the one that's exalted and put them there. You're the one that can take them down at any moment's time. You're really the only source of true wisdom, power, majesty, might. Lord, the deep, the secret things, God, you could tell us what holds matter together, but you already have. You told us it's you. Uh, Father, we believe that you're, you're the God particle. God is the God particle. And so, Father, we thank you for loving us and revealing yourself to us uh, through your word. And we pray that you strengthen us for the week that lies ahead. Uh, cause our eyes to be fixed on heaven. Lord, help us to seek you every day in every way and in everything. In Jesus' name, amen.